Whether you like history or not, if you care about bravery, wisdom, passion, larger-than-life characters, and some of the most emotionally intense moments in human experience, you've come to the right place. Daniele Bolelli is a university history professor, writer, and martial artist, and he shall be your guide in a journey to the place where history and epic collide. Welcome to episode 25 of History on Fire. A few quick pieces of news. One, I overcame my laziness, partially thanks to the help of the sweet folks from the History of Westeros podcast, and started a Patreon account. So in case you want to check it out, whether you are because you are in a generous mood or because you like some of the perks that are part of it, you know, I'll give away episodes early to people who are donating. Uh, we'll, there will be access to the old catalog, bonus episodes, things like that. Or maybe a combination of both. You like the perks and you happen to be in a generous mood. Either way, if you can please go check it out at patreon.com forward slash history on fire. Again, that's patreon.com forward slash history on fire. That would be sweet. In the meantime... While we wait for Patreon to do its magic and start growing over time, I would like to thank the sweet sponsors who help keep the light on. This episode of History on Fire is brought to you by 23andMe.com. 23andMe.com is a genetic service that can help you discover where your DNA comes from around the world. You can learn what percentage of your DNA comes from places like Italy, Finland, East Asia, and Africa. With your 23andMe reports, you can explore your connection to the world in a whole new way by traveling to the places that reflect your DNA. Visit 23andMe.com forward slash HOF. Again, that's, 23, that's the number 23, the letters and me dot com forward slash h o f of the for history on fire and that's where you'll find out where your dna destination lies also big thank you to blueapron.com that has been sponsoring us for this entire year this october blue apron is celebrating its fifth anniversary by bringing back its top 20 recipes from throughout the past five years as peak by the Blue Apron community. One of the things that often people forget is that Blue Apron really doesn't repeat recipes. It's always new stuff, which is why this is a kind of a celebratory thing to bring back the, the top recipes from the entire career of Blue Apron so far as peak by the public. It's weird. It's on one end, Sometimes I'm like, oh, I wish they redid this recipe again because I really like it a lot. But at the same time, every single recipe I've tried is so good that I enjoy the variety. But I'm happy with this idea that I will get to get some of my favorites again now. 
So try out Blue Apron's all-time customer favorites by going to blueapron.com forward slash on fire. Again, that's blueapron.com forward slash on fire, where as a special offer to History on Fire listeners, you will get $30 off your first meal with free shipping. Also, thank you to the two sponsors that have been having my back from day one. That's Onnit and Datsusara. Onnit has 3,000 good products that I love. They have everything from supplements to special foods to workout gear to clothing, you name it. But one thing that I've been using quite a bit has been their Alpha Brain Instant Formula. I noticed that it really wakes me up. So I often use it before a podcast. I find that everything clicks a little better in my brain. So check them out. Um, there's a free trial with it. You can go at www.onnit.com forward slash history. Again, that's onnit.com forward slash history. You will get an automatic discount this way. And if you happen to try their supplements and you don't like them, you can return them and get your money back. So as, as easy as it gets. And also, last but not least, big thank you to Datsusara. Datsusara make computer bags, backpacks, pretty much any other gear made with the finest hemp available. So if you want to check them out, you find yourself in needs of a bag of some kind, go to dsgear.com. Again, that's dsgear.com and see if what they have to offer is to your liking. If you didn't catch any of the above websites, the links are in the episode notes at historyonfirepodcast.com. I'll have a couple more announcements at the end of the episodes. Today, we are going to do something different with today's episode. Today is going to be a conversation. It's not just going to be my voice going on in narrative format. We're going to have a discussion with one of the godfathers of historical podcasting. So I hope you guys enjoy it. But in either case, more on how to support the show and make sure it stays viable, plus future plans at the end of this episode. But now, without further ado, let's go set history on fire. Special guest with us today. Um, for a change, I'm not doing just the standard uh, narrative of the typical episodes we've been doing so far. Today we have Mr. Mike Duncan here with us. Mike, very welcome to History on Fire. Oh, thank you for having me. For those of, well, I'm assuming that most of my listeners, since you guys are listening to a historical podcast, you're probably already familiar with Mike's work. Because Mike was one of the, if I can call you so, one of the early pioneers of the historical podcasting genre. You started when, in 2007? Yeah, Jan- yeah, I just celebrated my 10th anniversary. So it was, yeah, 2007. Check you out. In 2007, yeah. I don't think I even knew what, had any idea of what podcasts were. So that's, uh, 10, 10 years in podcasting is a lot. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, I, di- I didn't, I didn't feel like a pioneer when I started because mm-hmm. there, there was at that time like a fairly robust, you know, history podcasting community. But, you know, yet now I tell people, oh, yeah, I've been doing it since 2007. They're like, I didn't even know podcasting was a thing that long yeah, ago. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, and your first podcast, which was um, the one that we're going to be chatting mostly about today, History on Rome, that, History of Rome ran from 2007 to 2012, correct? 
Right. Wow. That was, uh, you took it from just the very like legendary founding of Rome all the way to the end of the Roman Empire. Is that the timeline? Yeah. I, I mean, episode one mm-hmm. was Aeneas arriving in Italy, you know, yeah. after fleeing the Trojan War and episode, it's episode 179. It was the 189th episode of the series is, um, is the fall of the West, the exile of Romulus Augustulus. Of course, we all know, like, it's hard to say, you know, that it's take it to the fall of the empire because uh, we don't want to give short shrift uh, to the Byzantines who kept yeah. the, who kept the thing going for another thousand years. Um, uh, but yeah, through the fall of the West. So it was a thousand years of history. Uh, <laughs> it, it took me, it took me five years to get through it. Um, and now, you know, it's still, you know, people are still discovering it. It's, it's now five years since I stopped doing it. Um, and I still get emails from people. It still does, um, pretty consistent download numbers as people discover podcasting. And then they're like, Oh my God, the history of Rome, this is still a thing. And I'm like, Oh yeah, I remember I did that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's one of the cool things about uh, historical podcasting as opposed to one of the more chatty news related podcasts that it's forever. You know, there really is no reason why somebody 30 years from now shouldn't be downloading it because it's not like the history of Rome is going to change anytime soon. So no, you know. exa- yeah, exactly. I, I, if, if it lasts, you know, every, every generation writes their own, you know, new version of the history of it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the history of Rome can live in there as, you know, one of this generation's contributions to um, to to people understanding the history. The history doesn't change, um, but you know, some of our interpretations of it can. That'd be that would be enormously gratifying, and certainly nothing that I would have expected. You know, when I sat down and Googled like how to podcast in July <laughs> 2007, and I was just looking for a hobby, um, I, I had some creative energy I needed to blow off, and um, it seemed like a fun way to fun thing to do. <laughs> That's awesome. Why Rome in particular? What was it that fascinated you about uh, this particular aspect of history? Oh, you know, like all the all the ancient civilizations have always held um, like a real fascination for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not just not just the Romans, but the Greeks, the Egyptians, you know, the ancient Mesopotamian civilizations, and then even you know more modern, the, the Aztec, the Inca, just they're they're almost like these alien societies that lived here on Earth, you know, just like a really long time ago. Um, so from the time I was a kid, I've been really really interested in uh, in ancient history. Uh, but at the time that I started doing. Um, the history of Rome, it was because I had fallen deeply in love with reading the ancient historians. Uh, so I was reading Livy and Suetonius and Polybius and just really fell in love with um, uh, the, the stories that were buried in these these old, dry, dusty books that nobody ever reads anymore uh, and wanted to share basically what, what I was teaching myself. Make perfect sense to me. Uh, it's interesting, though, because Rome in particular seems to be a popular obsession like a lot a lot a lot of people are i mean even just the fact that your podcast of course partially due to its high quality but also just the topic itself attracts people right i mean uh, rome for whatever reason seems to have a hold on like collective consciousness in a big kind of way um yeah and like and when i moved when i when, you know when i ended the history of rome and mm-hmm. then took a year off and moved on to revolutions, you know, I was real nervous about whether or not it was, it was Rome itself that was keeping people like listening to my show or whether I sort of personally had anything to do with it <laughs> because it's exa- that's exactly right. Like Rome itself has, is inherently fascinating and has like a magnetic pull to mm-hmm. people. 
and so yeah like people go looking for roman things all the time so yeah i was i was actually very nervous when i moved on to revolution <laughs> like is anybody gonna follow me because like it, it doesn't have what rome has which is like this um this really special attraction yeah that's funny but i mean i think after uh three zillion episodes you have probably built enough of a loyal audience that they would have followed you even if you were reading your grocery list you know at that point yeah, it, it's tur- like it turns out i was being overly neurotic <laughs> as we as it's typical yeah, it, in this it, kind it, of case well, you know. but why do you think for other people i mean i get it for you why do you think why roma is this big place on collective consciousness why is it this thing that constantly fascinates people where What's so special about Roman history as opposed to the history of many? I mean, many of the other civilizations you listed are very interesting in their own right, but they don't get one-tenth of the press that Rome does. What do you think is why? Well, I mean, there, there, there's one part of it is definitely that every every civilization that exists right now um, – in the West, right, that comes out of the Mediterranean, went through a Roman period, mm-hmm. right? So it's if you if you go back through the history of Britain, you go back through the history of Syria, you go back through the history of Algeria, you go back through the history of Germany. I mean, even them just fighting with the Romans. There's you're always going to get to this sedimentary layer of everybody's history where oh, this is the Roman period. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I do think that the fact that it's coded into the DNA of so many what would seem today to be very different civilizations like oh the British and the Syrians and you know Algerians like these seem to be very different but they all all of us shared um, this pre this this Roman period and now we're so we're living in North America or you're living in South America well those are all you know offshoots of Spanish civilization and British civilization French civilization which all had a Roman a Roman period so like you know, two thirds of the existing cultures on earth right now went through a Roman period. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, I think that has a big part. I think that plays a big part in it. Um, the other, the other part though, is that they were so powerful, right? And there is, there is a fascination with power that because of, because they were able to spread so far and last for so long, that there is something that that turns your eye as opposed to looking at you know because the Greeks culturally were so dominant but sure. they never they never ruled in the same way that the Romans like ruled everything definitely um, so I, I think that that a lot of people there's just there's a fascination with power humans are kind of captivated by the idea of power and I don't think that there's any civilization that exists in our collective consciousness or really in the history of the West that can claim the kind of power that Rome was that Rome represents I think uh, I think you nail it absolutely because you're right it is uh, if you go back far enough at the roots of pretty much every western civilization everything is tied to Rome in one way or another so that make uh, that makes sense at the same time what I find weird is when you consider for example like when the American founding fathers made it modeling the new United States after the Roman Republic was uh, not a was not done on the sly. It was done in a pretty obvious kind of way, right? From iconography to even explicitly in their writings, there was this theme that they were looking back at the ancient Roman Republic as a model. And on one hand, just as you say, it makes perfect sense. It is the one place in the West that has influenced all of Western culture. 
On the other hand, you know, call me crazy, but picking as a model something that due to its monstrous levels of corruption and internal factionalism eventually degenerated into an imperial dictatorship, I don't know, strikes me as less than a good idea. I can think maybe no model is better than a bad model, you know, because clearly the Roman Republic ends... uh, and not just ends, because everything comes to an end, you know, of course. One can say, well, it lasted 500 years, uh, it was a powerful, great thing. Kind of, but, you know, the problems that eventually bring uh, its downfall were there all along. And the supposedly best part of Roman history is the one that we really don't have a whole lot of sources about, so we don't really know how good it really was. By the time we really know our stuff, the problems that eventually lead to imperial dictatorship are all there. So, I don't know. I find that a little strange to pick a model that's... Yeah, that, well, there, there's, um, there was definitely a, a, a mythologized version mm-hmm. of the Republic that they were so captivated by. That everybody, I mean, like the, the Renaissance and the um, uh, and the Enlightenment era that mm-hmm. those guys are coming out of. And, and this is true not just of the Founding Fathers, but you go through like the French Revolutionary guys. You go mm-hmm. through some of the guys that were involved in, um, you know, the English Civil Wars. They were they were all as steeped in in Roman and classical history uh, as as George Washington or James Madison were. And a, a lot of it is just simply, you know, w- what system are you currently living under? Oh, well, we're living under these like medieval feudal monarchies. Yeah. OK, what's what's an answer? What's something what's some other model that we can go with? Um, and the Roman Republic was sitting there as as a very enticing uh, model to get away from these corrupt, you know, <laughs> these, these corrupt feudal regimes. And as it turns out, it's like. Well, corruption and power seem to just go together and they're endemic. And uh, in a lot of times, um, you know, the model of government is uh, is not nearly as uh, decisive as the people who are existing inside the model of government. You can have good kingdoms and bad kingdoms. You can have good republics and bad republics. Um, so corruption is just always going to be there. But I, I think a lot of it was just like, OK, what are we living under? What What can we get out from under it? And then, of course, you know, you, you take like the patricians of the United States and obviously they're going to be very um, uh, they're going to they're going to look very highly on a, this little oligarchy you know, <laughs> of, of, rich, of rich guys who get to hang out and, um, and just like run everything. Yeah. And that's one of the things that um, you bring up. Oh, by the way, I forgot to mention it, but you have a book coming out precisely on some of the so let's introduce the book and let's tie it back to what we're talking about because i you know of course that's a big theme in your book so let's tell us a little bit about what's coming up i think it by the time this episode is released it's probably going to be a couple of weeks toward uh, uh what day is it in october when your book is coming out it will come out tuesday october the 24th 2017 nice yeah that's it so depending on whenever uh whenever you're out there listening to this uh october the 24th is the date and it's uh, it's called the storm before the storm, the beginning of the end of the Roman Republic, and the idea here is to go back a generation or two before Julius Caesar comes along and Pompey and Mark Antony and Cleopatra and all all of the people who got together and very famously and dramatically destroyed the Republic in the fifties, forties, thirties BC to go back two generations earlier and say. Well, what was going on, you know, in the in the time of Julius Caesar's grandfather, right, or Pompey's grandfather or father? What was going on that led to the Republic being in such a 
such a dilapidated and easily destroyable state uh, by the time Julius Caesar comes along. Because it's not like those guys entered a world where the Republic was robust and strong yeah. and they just managed to tear it down. Like it was all, it was very clearly the foundations had cracked and it was becoming uh, very brittle and very fragile. So the storm before the storm, which is, you know, that's the clever title. There was, there was the storm, which is Julius Caesar's time. And then there was a huge storm before the storm, mm-hmm. right? Which was the Gracchi and Marius and Sulla. And you find an incredible array of, um, of problems, of wars, of internal conflict and strife and corruption and, you know, ambition leading to ultimately civil war by the end of the book. I mean, there was an yep. entire, there was entire runs of civil war before the great civil wars that destroyed the Republic. And in a lot of ways, like, you know, by the time you get hopefully to the end of the book, you might be asking yourself like, well, how on earth did the Republic even survive this? Like, I can't believe that. <laughs> right. I can't believe that this book ends and like that's not the end of the Republic. It When, you know, by the time Sulla comes along, you're just like, that. this is it. This should be it. Like, why did it even last to Julius Caesar's time? And in that sense, it's funny how big uh, institutions tend to take a long time to die. Because you're right. I mean, by the time Marius and Sill are going at it, it's obvious that it's the end. You know, that it's uh, forces are in motions that it would take a literal miracle to bring them back. But between seeing that it's obvious that it's going to come to an end and when it actually does come to an end, there's still, you know, people lived and die and grew their kids and, you know, generations go by before that happens so that's uh that's interesting in itself that you know yes there may be you may be on a train with tracks to nowhere but that doesn't mean you're gonna get there fast yeah and i mean half the people i mean everybody just sort of assumed that the republic was going to come back and i think that had a lot to do with why it did why it kept surviving Mm -hmm. Uh, even though it was very obvious that that raw power and violence were now the order of the day and you could everybody sort of deplored the current state of of roman politics in the in the 80s and in the 70s but you know the republic had always been around and it always would be around so you know that's maybe why it didn't fall absolutely right then but and then you even fast forward like past augustus um Mm -hmm. to you know in the ages of like tiberius and and caligula there were still plenty of people that were like okay well this weird this weird Augustan interlude um, is finally going to come to an end and we're going to go back to the way that things were. Um, we're going to go back to the Republic, that Augustus would maybe wind up being an aberration in the larger history of the Republic. And, you know, they're, of course, all diluting themselves by that point. Um, but, no, the, you know, that it, it never died. It never quite died. Yeah, and you're exactly right, because, I mean, it's obvious to us now, because we do see the trajectory in a very obvious kind of way. But maybe at the time there was, you know, when the game is still in play, there's the feeling that maybe it can turn out the other way. You know, to us, it looks inevitable now. You know, once you, st- uh, once you see the stuff that you describe in the book, the civil wars with Marion Sulla, even before Julius Caesar or any of those guys show up on the scene, it looks to us like, okay, it's pretty clear where this is going. But that's probably because we know the story, how the story ends. Yeah, already. and I mean, yeah, and I, I, I wrote the book you know, very clearly knowing how it all turns out. Yeah. Um, and we're sort of exploring how that inevitably, or how that winds up. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's always really fun to do, to do history from, from like the, the ground, uh, like from the actual people that are running around who have no idea what's going to happen next. Um, and I really think that that is where like real, like really understanding the course of history is as much as possible trying to not, 
know what happens next for all of these people because they didn't know what yeah. happened next. Definitely. And that changes all the dynamics, of course, because you, you don't have this sense of inevitability. You feel like some of the stuff you're doing can still change the course of where things are going. And no, that's for sure. That makes a very, very big difference. There's a quote there that I think captures sort of the spirit of where you're going with the book. There's uh, toward the beginning, you say, surprisingly, there has been much less written about how the Republic came to the brink of disaster in the first place. A question that is perhaps more relevant today than ever. So that's kind of the setup for the storm before the storm. This idea of, you know, when is that we start seeing all the dominoes fall? Not the spectacular ending of it all, but how does it begin? And I also I like what you bring up at the end of the quote when you say a question that is perhaps more relevant today than ever. There is, of course, a lot of discussion regarding parallels between what happened with the ancient Roman Republic and what we are facing in the modern world. And you, I mean, you make it clear that that's not what the book is about. You know, you're doing a book about Roman history or not a book trying to tell us about what's going on today. But of course, it's inevitable that some parallels do show up and you acknowledge some of them. What's your, uh, you, you discussed this a little bit at the beginning of the book, you know, you start a comparison between uh, the trajectory of American history versus the trajectory of uh, ancient Roman history. Um, for people who haven't read the book yet, what's your, what's your feel on this? Uh, the, well, this is an outgrowth of when I was doing the history of Rome and and people kept asking me like oh is is america the new rome like th mm -hmm. this has been a, this has been a question that has been going on since uh, you know at least the the cold war days yeah. like is 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 america rome is america the new rome um and i always when i was doing the history of rome was like let's let's not get into like those kinds of like you know forcing an, an analogy that doesn't quite work or whatever and let's just focus on the roman history but you know enough people asked me that i started toying around with the idea and it's like okay well if you know let's say that we're on we're we are doing something where where america is the new rome and maybe we are following a historical a similar historical trajectory to the romans um well where where would we be on the timeline mm -hmm. um so let's you know and then you just kind of go through it are we at the are we at the founding period where a bunch of vagabonds get together and found a new you know uh found a new colony or found a new city like no that was you know that was the founding fathers that's yeah. you know the colonization of north america we're nowhere near that um you know is it the regional expansion period where you're fighting wars against your neighbors uh and becoming a regional power like no we we did that we you know we took over north america and conquered the indians uh they uh, conquered the native americans we have become the we became the regional power over um you know pretty much the western hemisphere okay so where are we at the great global conquest phase where you know we've def we're, we're defeating carthage and becoming like the single great power like Okay, well, you know, World War One, World War Two, the Cold War. Okay, let's, there's something a little bit there. Um, but then you say, well, has the Republic fallen, and have we been taken over by a dictator? Like, no, that no. hasn't happened. Um, right. You know, as I, I think I actually say in the author's note, you know, despite what some hysterical commentators may yeah. claim, you know, and pe people always say, like, if the other party is in power, you're like, oh, they're, they're a tyrant, they're a dictator. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, yeah, <laughs> that's just, how, that's just, that's yeah. just par for the course, right? Yeah. Like Democrats said it about Bush and then uh -huh. Republicans said it about Obama and now uh, Democrats say it about Trump. So 
But really, I mean, we still have elections. The the mechanism yeah. of the republic still exists. It's all actually still doing what it's supposed to do. And we have elections, um, even though there are many critiques you can make about many parts of it. It's still basically functioning. OK, so that means that we haven't gotten to the Caesars yet. And we're certainly not at the like, oh, we're declining and breaking apart. And um, we're about to be overrun by like literally a million Visigoths. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we're, we're nowhere. We're nowhere near any of that. Um so that that kind of lands us somewhere between 146 BC, uh, you know, after the Romans had defeated Carthage and conquered Greece, um, but before the rise of the Caesars. So somewhere in that century, and obviously, like I don't think we're at the point now where we're actually having dynastic civil wars uh, for the fate of the republic. So that means you pull it back even further, and you're like, okay, well, maybe we are at this. Maybe the closest historical parallel, if there is one. Um, is this period where the Gracchi show up in Marius and Sulla? This this fifty or sixty year <laughs> period has a lot of has a lot to recommend um, to somebody who's trying to look to the past for some kind of guidance about how we're going to make it through. What I think everybody acknowledges, whatever whatever your political persuasion is, I think we all acknowledge that the United States and the West generally is dealing with some pretty major issues. We have mm-hmm. some pretty major problems on our hands. And if not navigated correctly, um, it's very easily, it's very easy to see the whole thing collapsing. Yeah, because the the time frame that you're identifying as if we are anywhere on the same, this is where we are. It's not exactly a happy time frame because it's basically the right before everything goes south and all hell break loose. So it's one of the things where it's like, okay, you still have a shot at turning it around, but the waterfall is right there and we are headed straight over it. Yeah. And I, um, you know, I pitched this book back in uh, 2015. Mm -hmm. Like it was really like pretty early 2015 is when I was putting together the book proposal and it it had been something that I'd been turning over in my mind for a couple of years before that. And um, I was hoping that it would be like prescient. Uh, you know, here's a warning for the future. Yeah. And then I'm I'm like, I'm writing the book during the 2016 presidential election, which is <laughs> just like, I mean, it was I'm, I, I said this repeatedly, this became a running joke on on Twitter, uh, which is just I'm writing the book as fast as I can. Right. I like I can't I can't I'm writing the book as fast as I can. I'm going to try to get it to you. Hopefully it won't be obsolete by the time that the book actually comes out, because I mean, so many of uh, the the fault lines, the cracks that that you could see opening up with the Romans, like they they really do seem to be in play right now in a very major way. Absolutely, there are even you know I was uh, reading it with uh, smiling sometimes because there were some quotes there where you're obviously speaking about Roman history. There's no argument, but you don't have to look far to see the parallels. There's there's a quote right there that I jotted down where you're talking about the story of this consul. Uh, Lucius Martius Philippus, and you say, in fine Roman fashion, now that a similar bill was being proposed by his enemies, Philippus opposed it vehemently. It's like, it's funny, because the guy just pushed a bill that got turned down, now his enemies push basically the same concept, and of course, so he's against it, and it's like... Oh, if... oh so against it. Like, yeah, yeah I mean, he, w- he went down and was like, uh, he was trying to break up votes in the assembly to stop yeah. people from... Uh, from going forward with a land reform bill that 
I think it was like 10 years earlier that mm-hmm. he had proposed and, and quite, you know, quite dramatically his one. He he actually provides one of the most famous quotes um, for people that are trying to get a handle on uh, what the like the socioeconomic uh, troubles were, where he he said that there were not 2000 men in the state who owned any property. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the idea here is, is this is this is even 20, 25 years after the Gracchi. Uh, had failed at their attempt at land redistribution. So yeah, he's he's pushing land redistribution and then it doesn't work. And 10 years later, his enemies come forward with this land redistribution bill. And he's like, oh no, you're, that's evil and bad and wrong. He switches sides like three or four times. And I think that's one of the things that's funny when people draw the parallels with uh, modern day, because one of the things that you, and I mean, maybe maybe a degree of heavy factionalism is inevitable in most systems that allow for a plurality of voice. But at the same time, when you look at the modern political scenario, how, you know, what you just described with the story of this guy is basically to a T what people do all the time. You know, whatever idea, if your enemy pick them, pick it up and they run with it, suddenly you hate it. So showing that is never really the idea that you cared about is more of a struggle for power and this, there's just this extreme factionalism that if anybody else but my guy say it, then screw it. Then we're not going to go that way. Then it's a bad idea and we'll fight it. And Yeah, and because you can't, um, you can't give the other side a win, yeah. right? Even if, even if it's good rationally, even if it makes sense, even if you would sit down like at the end of the night with a drink in your hand with your buddies and say, it's actually a really good idea that we do this. But politically, from a from an acquisition of power standpoint, you simply can't let your political opponents have a win. You can't let them do good things for the country or for the state, uh, because if they do good things, they're going to be popular and then you're not going to be able to get power. So, yeah, it's uh, there are some things that are being quite nakedly exposed, I think, at this point. And I think that's exactly one of the problems that stand in the way of anything good coming out of the modern political system or of anything good coming out of the Roman Republic at the time when you analyze it, that when you are locked in that kind of power struggle where it doesn't matter what, you know, whether an idea is good or not, it doesn't matter whether it can help people or not, it's all about using it as political capital to defeat your opponents, then the whole game is already done. I mean, the whole nothing good can come out of it because if you are locked in this deep factionalism where nothing will fly it doesn't matter if your opponent say the sun is out it's like no the sun can't be out because if you say so then it's not then it's inevitable that the whole thing end up eating itself and it, you know it dies in a series of brutal fights between the different power players there yeah and then there that helps you then understand the appeal of somebody like Julius Caesar, mm-hmm. right, who comes along because what that level of gridlocked factionalism where it's more important to score points or uh, not let your other not let your opponents score points uh, in these in these little games of like kind of petty power politics that if somebody like comes along and says, hey, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to cut through all of this. Like you, the people you hate both sides, like this group of uh, political elites, they're not doing anything for anybody. They're just they're just locked in their own little uh, myopic political war. I'm going to cut through everything and bring the reforms and make the changes that need to be made. You know, that's appealing 
you, I mean, Julius Caesar doesn't come in necessarily like with the people saying, oh, now we're being ruled by a tyrant and that's horrible. They're like, oh, thank God. <laughs> somebody's actually, somebody, somebody's actually going to do something. This is amazing. Like, great. You know, yeah, we're, you know, reform the calendar, right? Like, um, like change the way grain is uh, distributed, like phenomenal. Let's do this thing. And I think that's what people forget sometimes about, because we remember dictators for how they end, but we rarely consider how they begin. And usually they begin with cheers and public celebration, because they are there to, at least in theory, they are there to fix a problem that people by now have had it with. They can't take it anymore, and they show up as the strong man who's going to take care of it all. Uh, and so that's it. You know, we see it with Julia. I mean, even Hitler has that same story, right? He's, oh, he sure. shows up yeah. in Germany yeah. with an extremely high level of popularity because the situation was so intolerable that the guy who say, I'm against it, I'm going to rescue you from this problem, inevitably got a lot of attention and popular acclaim. So it's kind of funny because it, it seems like we're stuck with this mentality that, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, that if we know that something is bad, and somebody goes against it, then clearly that person must be a great alternative. And, you know, that rarely works out well, but that's, uh, I can see how that's a common trait. Yeah, and so it, basically what that means is that there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of agency uh, that the that these sort of squabbling political elites have. Like, mm-hmm. if, if anybody is going to be able to back us away from this, um, to let, you know, participatory Republican government continue to exist in a century from now and two centuries from now. Um, the real power to make sure that a dictatorship doesn't, uh, you know, sort of capture the system is to back away from this and to do more cooperative governing, uh, and ratchet down the stakes a little bit and not say, Oh, well, if my, uh, if my enemies get something, that means, Oh, the the whole world is going to end. Yep. Um, you know, maybe maybe ratchet down the rhetoric a little bit and maybe let the other side have a win every once in a while, because otherwise you're just playing chicken with the entire Republican system, which is exactly what they were doing and leads to the consequence that then eventually we can all see. So, right. yeah, that's uh, there's another quote that you threw. In so this there. is this has oh. been this has been happy fun time on. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Oh, you know, barbarians will be knocking at the gate. <laughs> right. Okay. Okay. There's another quote you said. Yeah, there was another one that I, I, I was reading and I was like, well, I see where this is going, where you said, but this was an age when a lie was not a lie if a man had the audacity to keep asserting the lie was true, which seems right. quite fitting considering the breakdown of the modern new system. Nobody trusts in anybody, the sense that at this point, doesn't even matter what actually is factually true or not, is because you can always spin it as oh, the news media is lying or this other source is lying, and you know, people basically via social media, people believe the weirdest things that are not based in facts ever, because essentially there is no sense of uh, objective, uh, trusted sources that you can rely on, and so now the feeling is, you know, as long as you keep looking solid in your life, you can probably get away with it. Yeah. And what, and, and that, that part in the book is, um, is when Saturninus and, uh, Glaucia have, have pulled out the fake son of Tiberius Gracchus, where this mm-hmm. is, you know, we're, we're talking, uh, we're, we're 25 or so years past the almost 30, well, 30 years past the death of Tiberius Gracchus. 
and they these guys now want to run on the legacy of the Grokens and they want to capture the old like Grokken Grokken power and Grokken um Grokken coalition so yeah they just they just bring out some guy and they're like oh well this is Tiberius Grokkus's son right mm-hmm. he's the son of Tiberius Grokkus and it's not true uh you know the the leadership the the guy the censors are not going to enroll him as uh as the son of Tiberius Gracchus like their Tiberius Gracchus's sister is still alive That's right. and she's like I don't I've never I don't know this this guy is not like my nephew I've never heard of him I've never seen him before like this is yeah. just this is bullshit um but yeah who cares because <laughs> they had they had successfully planted a seed that the son of Tiberius Gracchus was sitting in their inner circle right and if you don't know who you can trust then you can just kind of say anything. And that is definitely right now a, a major, it's a major, major problem uh, where we've lost track of even, like, I don't know if it's a loss of shame or what exactly it is, but to to just continue to say something in the face of objective, uh, an objective fact is um, extraordinarily troubling. Yeah, I mean, as we record, just yesterday the Vegas shooting took place, and uh, and it's hilarious because yeah, you see those dynamics where you see the craziest, wildest stories being reported with no one trace of evidence regarding what really happened, and you know, it's kind of like yeah, you know, why not? Uh, it's a, a lot of people repeat them, and this, you know, you can apply this to so many different events. It seems to be like an ongoing uh, theme that we are definitely facing today which is funny because on one end we have we have this form of you know since like social media right stuff that's amazing because it allows people to connect it allows people to have access to information to a degree that nobody would have ever dreamed of in the past and yet that does not necessarily always mean it's good information and well yeah and i i've i've talked about this i mean not on the podcast or just i mean just in my regular life where mm-hmm. You know, we have in our pockets like the sum total of all human knowledge yep. instantaneously available to us. And we, we can know everything. We're, we're walking around with the world, the collective world consciousness in our pockets. And usually what we use it for is to go and confirm some bias or some belief that we already hold. Right. We almost never use it to go acquire <laughs> new information. We just go. Yeah. We, we spend 15 seconds Googling up something that is we'll skip anything that doesn't confirm what we want to confirm. Yep. And then we'll land on the one thing that confirms it doesn't matter if it's true, doesn't matter if it's got 17 Pinocchio pants on fire <laughs> ratings. It doesn't matter if Snopes has written, you know, like 78 different takedowns of this, like if that confirms your bias. You're just going to click on it and be like, see, and then you share it and that's it. Like, that's what we do. That's what we do with the sum total of all human knowledge is we go find lies that confirm our biases. Wonderful. <laughs> silly monkeys being silly God, monkeys, silly, right? God, silly monkeys. Of course, silly monkeys. God, yeah. we are. Oh, humans. It was funny because the theme that we are bringing up a minute ago about factionalism is interesting to me because... Not just historically, but even if you look at like a couple of the biggest TV shows out there today, you know, shows like The Walking Dead or Game of Thrones, over and over again, they deal with the same theme, which, you know, if you strip the dragons and the zombies and all the wilder stuff of it all, really one of the core themes of those shows is the inability of human beings to work with one another. 
you know, even in the face of a zombie apocalypse, most people seem to prefer finding ways to take advantage of one another in a rape and pillage fashion, rather than join forces and work together for a mutually advantageous outcome. Uh, same thing in Game of Thrones, you know, you have uh, this possible apocalypse coming and everybody's busy squabbling for power among one another. Roman history tells us the same story. You know, at a time when cooperation could have saved the Republic, competition still ruled. Um, does, and, you know, and we see the same dynamics repeating themselves throughout history time and time again. Does this make you more pessimistic about humanity and human nature? Do you see it as, yeah, that is a problem, but there's, but there's an upside to it? What's your take on it? Oh, I'm, I'm very mixed right mm-hmm. like i i take a, a fairly balanced view of humans because it, it's um you know we're we're talking and i wrote a book about the beginning of the end of the roman republic mm-hmm. um it's very exciting um but one of the things that is so impressive about the romans in particular was f- for 400 years no 300 years they ran a cooperative government without any one um without any one man seizing power without it ever uh coming without it without it collapsing as quickly as you might think um and i I, one time i went back through and and i think that there were uh because during the samnite wars and during the punic wars the romans were throwing up dictators like left and right um Mm -hmm. like the like the the annually elected consuls almost like would fall away for periods of time so there was something like 100 150 uh different men um, who had been named dictator after the founding of the Republic in 509, but before, uh, let's say Sulla and every single one of them laid down power. Um, every single one of like, no matter how, uh, no matter how intense the political squabbling became at the end of the day, they, at least the, the elites, you know, like, yes, technically it's this, um, it's this little closed club of, uh, of oligarchs, but they never let one faction or one man, grab a hold of the whole thing. So it, it actually lasted for quite a long time. Uh, the American Republic, again, has many of the same problems where the, the political elites have kept a republic going for a very long time for it's it's an, an impressive track record uh, that we haven't yet fallen, uh, even if the history of the United States is a lot of uh, there's a lot of people who were just simply denied power outright who wouldn't mm-hmm. Who wouldn't know the difference between a, repu- a quote unquote representative republic or a dictatorship because either way, like they're locked out of power and they're locked out of, of having a voice. But um, when it comes to cooperative representative government, it, it, in the United States, it has persisted. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in the West, generally, it has persisted. The Roman Republic did last for a long time. So nothing is going to last forever and everything mm-hmm. is eventually going to fall apart and we will eventually succumb to our baser instincts. But there is there is something enlightened inside the human brain, I think, somewhere um, that has made has made it not inevitable. And I think even if we collapse now, it'll it'll come back around. Um, Yeah. And I think your your mixed approach to this is exactly what also makes those kind of shows fascinating, because if it was only gloom and doom and people just eating each other, okay, well, it gets old pretty fast and you just want to shoot yourself and be done with it. Part of what keeps people glued to the screen is this back and forth battle between these self-destructive forces that are just too narrow minded to consider the bigger picture and they are just busy 
getting what they can today at the expenses of the overall good outcome. But at the same time, you also see the best side of human nature show up sometime and try to find a way in the middle of the chaos and madness of it all to make it work, to to create happiness for as many people as possible. And maybe that's exactly what human history is. Maybe those are the forces that we that we play with all the time and that probably will continue to play with all the time. That there's this kind of ongoing battle inside the human mind and among human beings that will uh, that will always play out like this. Yeah, and I mean you you know this too that you know the history of humanity has a tendency to be and certainly I'm you know guilt, guilty of this if this is a, a criticism you want to make of history is that it's a lot of um oh let's talk about this war and then let's talk about this genocide and let's talk about mm-hmm. um this collapse of a government um but in in a lot of ways um it's a lot like watching you know, the local news mm-hmm. where, you know, you turn it, I, there's a comedian once, I, I think it was Richard Jenny, who's like, we shouldn't call it the news. We should just call it the bad news right here. Okay. It's 11 o'clock. Here's the bad news, right? Like a, like, like a fire broke out and this person got murdered and you know, this uh, politician is corrupt and the weather is going to be crappy tomorrow. Um, but the reason we're being told about th- these bad news events is because they're kind of unique aberrations over the course of the day. And really what human history is, is uh, millions and millions and millions of people pretty much peacefully going about their business with each other um, yeah. and having families and going to work and coming home and watching TV and playing with their kids and, uh, you know, having picnics on the weekends. Like the vast majority of the human lived experience is is pretty peaceful and pretty calm and, and pretty generous and loving um, at the same time that it can also be petty and, you know, full of stupid drama and, you know, stupid work drama. Like, yeah, I just don't like working with that person or whatever. But um, you know, the, these really big breakdowns, I, th- I think it, we do have a tendency due to the selection bias of what is exciting and what we want to talk about in history to focus on the really, really negative things, um, that humans have ever done without really looking at just the day-to-day lived experience of most people. So I, I don't think that humans are cruel and destructive and merely just selfish, whatever's, um, the, there's, there's plenty of good in there too. And I think it's interesting. I mean, I wasn't planning to touch on this topic because it's something that I tend to talk about a lot. But since you bring it up, it makes perfect sense. Like, do you think it's just a matter of fact that we, the reason why we, in history, we tend to focus on the drama, on the horror, on the massacres, on the nasty things, is that because that's more exciting than just listening about some lady raising her kids well? Or... You know, is that is that an excitement factor that does it or or what do you think? Oh, I th- well, I think there, there's there's two big things to it. Number one. Yes, it's exciting. Right. Mm-hmm. That's why we go. That's why we go see action movies. Um, that's why we don't go see, you know, some boring French movie where two people are just talking to each other. Um, <laughs> I mean, people I'm not I'm not to knock it. Uh, sure. No, no, let's not. Whatever. It's it's fine. It. But th- there's a reason why, you know, the Avengers is bright noise. Uh, that everybody is drawn to and, you know, some nice little independent movie doesn't get um, right. doesn't get any play because it is exciting. Right. So that's definitely a part of it. But the other part of it is that I think that historians too um, very naturally look to when like the quote unquote course of history changed, like when it moved, like when when did it go this way and not that way? Like when did this 
when did this government rise and when did this government fall? Like we, we look for those turning points in history mm-hmm. and you're not really going to find a turning point in history, um, you know, at, in farmer John's backyard who spent 50 years peacefully raising sheep, you know, you're going to find it on, on a battlefield someplace, you know, yeah. you're going to find it at, uh, you're going to find it at an Omaha beach, right? You're not going to find it back on the home front. Um, so I, I think that there's a natural tendency if you're asking the question, like, how did we get here to look to the places where the turns were made? Um, like, where did we start? Where were the turns made? So how did we wind up here as opposed to looking at the the stretches in between where the course didn't really change? And those turning points always uh, have a tendency to be when when it's like a clash of arms, when it's when everything gets devolved to like just two physical powers running into each other. And which one is going to emerge victorious? That's when the course of history usually changes. No, and I think I think that nails a very important point. That yeah, if we're looking for a turning point for revolutionary moments that change the status quo, they don't usually happen in just a gradual, pleasant fashion. They do happen with drama. They do happen with conflict. So that that make perfect sense. Absolutely. Yes, and so and so for somebody like me, you know, like I, I mean, I do revolutions and. <clears throat> you know, an exploration of the great political revolutions that do that changes the course of history that that then just has the added bonus of, of course, being um, exciting and compelling enough that you kind of want to find out what happens next in the story. Um, while at the same and, you know, the, the stakes are really high, you know, like all, all the stuff that you want out of out of drama is all present. Um, and it also just happens to inform uh, how we got to this spot in 2017. Like, how did we wind up here? Speaking of drama, what's your take on uh, the many recent versions of Roman history on the big screen? Like, for example, we have had, uh, starting with Gladiator, which I think is the thing that brought back Rome as a viable topic for movies. Then, so we had Gladiator, among some of the big ones, we have seen uh, the HBO series Rome. There was more recently the Spartacus series, um, What's your take on some of these cinematic adaptation of Roman history? Um, I have never honestly been too impressed with most of it, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is um, like this is, this is a fairly common. Like, what's your favorite Roman history movie? Like, I loved Gladiator when mm-hmm. I saw it when it came out because um, it was a great big movie. Now now that I'm completely steeped in Roman history to go back and watch it, you're like, ah, okay. I mean, all right. Um, (laughs) all right. And then just some of the other ones, like there's, there, there's various movies that are just not, um, very well done as movies. Mm -hmm. So it's like it, you don't even get to, Oh, is this a good depiction of Roman history? Um, because it, it's not even a particularly compelling movie, which is the first thing that it needs to be, which at least, I mean, gladiator had that, right? Yeah. Uh, so it was a compelling movie. And then you start to ask how good it was. Um, I, I had, I happened to what I did really like the, the Spartacus show mm-hmm. that was yep. on stars, um, which is so over the top. Like, <laughs> I mean, just, it just like the, the sex exploitation, the violence exploitation. Yep. Right? I mean, just, they just cranked everything up to 15, but you just kind of feel like whoever the guys were that were making the show were like, they just so gleefully embraced it. Oh yeah. You know, like, that was- okay. The yeah. most explicit sex other than oh. porn, you know, it's like yeah. anything yeah. past that point is just straight up porn. You know, there's yeah, nothing it, left in between. Yeah, it was. Well, and, it, and the only thing that was left in between was like incredibly graphic violence. Yeah. So it was incredibly graphic violence, like intercut with, yeah, 
softcore porn. Um, so it was a, you know, it's, it's, it's a highly entertaining show, even if, uh, even if you wouldn't necessarily recommend it to your kids. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what about, the... but, on, but honestly, like oh. my, like my answer, my, my favorite, my favorite Roman history movie is Cleopatra is the old, the old Elizabeth Taylor, yeah. uh, yeah, Rex Harrison and Richard Burton. I, I love that movie yeah, right. it, a lot because it was really clear the guys who, whoever put the screenplay together was writing out of Plutarch and writing out of Julius Caesar's commentaries and writing out of, um, writing out of Cicero. It was really clear that whoever wrote it, um, was, was pretty well steeped in the sources. So that, that depiction of it is, I think has always been my favorite. How about the HBO series, the Rome? Oh, the, the H so that, so I, I'm really <laughs> conflicted about that because they did such a great job, um, with the look and feel of mm -hmm. everything. Like, like I, I really enjoyed that. Uh, the guy who played Julius Caesar was great. Yep. Uh, he was, you, you couldn't take your eyes off him. Yep. Um, but again, I, the first thing you need to look at with, with fiction and with drama is like, are you enjoying this as a TV show? And like Varinus is one of the main characters mm -hmm. and I, I hated Varinus. I oh, didn't yeah. like, it. I, yeah. the guy, the guy was a, the guy was a, Uh, he sucked. Yeah, so yeah so it was completely it was, obnoxious. I like the other yeah, guy. He was, he, was, he, was, he was, yeah, he was a horrible character, and yeah. he was one of the main characters. And I think somebody that we were supposed to be sort of identifying with and rooting for. And I couldn't stand the guy. And Pulo was just kind of an idiot, and they did stupid things. So from, <laughs> I don't a, know. <laughs> just from a script, just from a script writing standpoint, um, many of the character arcs and storylines of Rome. Uh, I was not able to enjoy, right. uh, even if it looked great. And then, like I say, yeah, the guy who played Caesar was was sensational. I had a soft spot for Poole. Uh I think you know well, in intelligence is highly overrated, and so well, I, Poole, I like his uh, I mean, cheerful stupidity. The, the thing is, like if if you if you watch it, like he gets a brain transplant, yeah. but in season one and season two, yeah. right? Like he's he's a just a dunce in season one, and then season two, he's like. He's like advising Octavian on what <laughs> like oh, I don't know what is happening in this yeah, series. Yeah, yeah. Like I can understand why this is being canceled. <laughs> also it was a financial boondoggle for HBO. One of the things that also I find interesting though is that in some way, for me at least, some of this representation, especially the HBO one, was interesting as because uh, I'm sure your perspective of uh, Roman history might be so different from mine just because I grew up with this stuff all the time right growing up in Italy you hear about it when you're five years old and then they tell you again the whole thing when you're six and seven and, and you, you just repeat this story for like 15 years of your life they keep going at it to the point that in on Italian newspapers like in some title of an article that has nothing to do with Roman history, there will be some really obscure references to Roman history that everybody's expected to know about just because, you know, you're bombarded with this stuff day and night. So I, to be honest, I hated Roman history growing up. I was just like, enough of this crap. Can we just talk about something else already? You know, I just found everything else on earth fascinating except Roman history. But then once I started kind of when I was older and getting the, a different take on it, not hearing it from the million time the way I heard it in Italy, but seeing it sometime through these eyes, through the HBO eyes or through something like that. I'm not saying it was the most accurate thing in the world, but I found it very helpful to discover what was actually, 
Like I found it easier to like it with outsider size than I did when I had insider size on it. I, I found myself then saying, oh, now I get it. Now I understand why it's a big deal. Now I understand why it can be a fun topic. So I don't know, maybe it's just because of my own personal experience, but I tend to have a somewhat forgiving take on some of the um, cinematic versions of it, just sure. because they are what led me to sort of rediscover Roman history. Yeah, I can, I can, I can see that for sure. And, you know, and, and in the United States, like our version of that is like the founding fathers, right? Where it's just that story over and over. And, but I mean, you guys got Rome, right? I mean, how, yeah. yeah. I, I think it's one of the six. It's kind of like, uh, you know, we we're before we started recording, I was telling you, I was living in Los Angeles. I look outside and it's sunny yeah, all the time. Yeah. I'm like, ah, another day in the sun. What, what crap? Can we get some winter already? You know, that's... Uh, that's one of the issues. People, you know, the grass is always greener kind of thing, right? Yeah. And I, you know, I had a, I had some nice, um, you know, I did a whole series on on Spanish-American independence on Simon Bolivar and, you know, Jose de San Martin and those guys. And um, I got some really nice emails from Venezuelans and from Colombians uh, and people in Argentina who were like, this is really great. It, it, because I think probably in the same in the same dynamic that you're talking about, where they're kind of bludgeoned year after year with the same mythologized version of these guys to the point where you get to be 15, 16 years old and you're like, I hate Bolivar. I yeah. hate him. He <laughs> sucks. I don't I never want to hear about this guy ever again. Um, and then when I sort of went through it from an outsider's perspective, just talking about what they did and how they did it and why it was important, they were like this is this is this is good. I'm I'm actually enjoying this guy who I've hate literally hated my entire life. Yep. Um. I'm I'm sort of enjoying your take on it. That's so th- a, those 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 are some of the best emails that I've ever gotten in the in the course of doing like any of this. But it's true, you know that does. And I mean, even in the book, for example, you do bring up uh, there are a few moments where you tell the story with such a different perspective. For example, when. Uh, when Marius is dealing with the invasion, I don't even know how they say it in English. Is it Simbri or Kimbri or oh, how I, do they pronounce I, I'm it? Go- Kimbri. Kimbri. Kimbri, okay. Kimbri is what I'm going with. When, they, when the Kimbri are invading, you actually present a very sympathetic view of uh, their, their situation. You know, you provide some logical reasons why they were doing the way what they were doing. Whereas, you know, the typical version of Roman history make these guys just look like zombies coming from outer space who are there to invade everything that's good and holy and instead you made a very logical argument for why these guys were there why they actually tried to be nice about it and instead they kept getting antagonized by Roman generals and in some way you know what seemed like a very straightforward story suddenly it gets a lot more complicated because you added a lot of humanity to both sides and to their motivation. So I thought that was a really interesting spot in, in the book. Well, I'm glad that worked. I, I, I spent some time trying to figure out what the Kimbri were up to, um, because certainly the Romans themselves didn't put a lot of effort into (laughs) trying to figure it out. So you never know. It's just like they just like they would disappear. And then four years later, they'd show up again. And the Roman historians are just like, Oh, and then the great horde of barbarians came and we had to go beat them again. Like, yep. Actually, you lo- number what you lost like every time that yep. you ever fought these people, except the last time, which is very Roman. That's like the most Roman yep. thing of all is to like lose twenty battles in a row, but still won the still win the war. Like that's how the Romans actually conquered the Mediterranean. Um, yeah, but yeah, just to just to try to figure out like how to make like, what were they doing? 
it's mm-hmm. it's it's still a mystery. I'm I I still like I wouldn't have like a good answer. Um, you know, you, we, all we can do is just like speculate a little bit. Yeah, but that was that was a very good speculation because it sounded very reasonable based on the facts. So I found that very interesting. Now, speaking of your style of telling history, there's anybody who does historical podcasting has to figure out the balance between a more narrative storytelling side and a more academic, uh, rigorous side. You know, on one extreme, you end up telling fun stories that have nothing to do with history. At the other extreme, you become, yeah, you may be totally accurate, but you're deadly boring. How, where do you find uh, the sweet spot for you? How were you able to kind of find your voice in terms of doing something that's still very much based on the sources, but that people would want to listen now when they are stuck in a classroom and where they have no choice, but where, you know, with podcasting, everybody has a choice to turn it off at any moment. What, um, how did you go about it? What was your method, if there was one? How do you, you know, where do you feel you stand in that continuum between these two opposites? I don't, I never really, I didn't ever sit down and think it through. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, I was very much making it up as I went along. Like, I mean, when I started, I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, I just knew that I was really into Livy and, right. and, and wanted other people to be into Livy too. Um, but I think for me, the, so the, if you want to explain what happened in history, mm-hmm. you do it chronologically. Yeah. Um, I think that's the most, I think that's how you keep people's interest, uh, that it is stories of people doing things and today it was like this. And then the next day they did this. And then a month later they did this and a month later they did this. Um, and that chronological unfolding of events will lead itself very naturally to times where you can be like, oh, and then when this happened, like this opens up a, a wider discussion of of how how the society transformed or how, again, we went in this direction or that direction at some turning point or why this individual is important or why this, uh, you know, why this event is important, that having that chronological uh, thread is what is going to keep people interested um, on sort of a minute by minute basis. Whereas if you go with these more like uh, thematic, like, okay, well, now we're going to talk about the nature of democracy, or now we're going to talk about, you know, some abstract concept of, you know, power versus the individual. Um, I think that you can lose people really easily, where if you keep the story going, when you tell a chronological narrative, yeah, the, the paragraphs seem to just come of their own volition when you want to peel off and go on a little digression or, or make some uh, more analytic point as opposed to just keep the story going. Um, so I, I'm i doing this, even still today, like I'm working like purely on instinct, right? Um, mm-hmm. Where I'm just sitting down like right now I'm trying to explain the revolutions of 1848 and I'm just trying to explain what happened on February the 22nd and then February the 23rd and February the 24th. And you can see in there when the moments are that you need to stop and say, and, and this is important for this much larger reason. Uh, I think that those things just kind of come of their own accord. So I've, and I've maybe, it's just like, I've got a knack for it. Like maybe I did find what I was supposed to be doing with my life. Um, yeah. Because the, these things do kind of come instinctively. I, I, I never really have to force it. That makes perfect sense. I would, for example, would you compare your style to, 
you know, you have people like other pioneers of historical podcasting, like Dan Carlin. You know, he had a couple of series on uh, on Rome. He did uh, Death Throws of the Roman Republic, which is basically kind of where you start with your book and then continues with Caesar. He did the one about the Punic Wars. Um, every one of us has their style of doing things. How do you think, like, compared to what uh, the way Dan tackled the topic, how do you think... If, if I can force you to be a little self-reflective on this and look at it from the outside, what do you think is your take compared to the way uh, Dan Carlin would do? What, what Dan does and what he does so well and why he's so popular, um, he, he does really immersive history, mm-hmm. right? Like it, he, it's almost like a, like, a, like a virtual reality thing that he's trying to do where he he wants to put you in the middle of the action and he will keep painting and describing the way things are, the way things look, the way things sound so that you can really like you would close your eyes and he's putting you back in that place. Um, That's that's his style. And that's why that's why it works so well. Um, And he's so good at it that that's why it's so popular. Um, Mm -hmm. My my stuff is more like I'm I'm reading you a book about mm. Roman history, right. right? Where, where I'm, I'm, I'm never like, and then, you know, you can feel the rain, you know, on your face and then like, and then you get hit with blood and then, you know, somebody's hacked your leg off and you're like, <laughs> how does that feel? Like, I, I don't, I don't really go, I don't really go in for that sort of stuff. I have just, I have just, I'm writing every week, you know, and Dan's also, he's just kind of like t- talking off the top of his head. Yeah. Um, cause he, he comes from a, um, uh, from like a talk radio background. Uh-huh. Um, whereas I, I'm writing a story and then reading it to you. Gotcha. Um, and that's, that's how I'm, that's how I approach it. Um, so I think, I think there's, I think that's like a big difference. And I, I think both styles have things that, um, have strengths and weaknesses. Mm-hmm. Um, like, of course, like, yeah, everything. like, yeah, just like everything has yeah. its strengths and weaknesses, except Superman. Superman has no weaknesses. Well, yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. There's always yeah. one, at least. There There's has to be one, one weakness. Yes, yeah. Green Lantern is stopped by yellow or yeah, something. Yeah, you know, that's how it works. Okay. The, um, if I can bug you with a couple more things, in terms of characters from Roman history, I mean, there's clearly such a long history there, so many fascinating figures. Is there kind of one or two that stand out for you as people that just as human beings you are kind of captivate that captivated your interest that whether in a good or a bad way you know but somebody were like you kept going to well studying their biography being into their story as a person yeah there's um i have a i have a real love kind of for anybody that i feel like i i discovered on my own um mm-hmm. or sort of these like secondary figures um who don't get talked about that much um so like in in the history of rome like like i discovered aurelian um buried in the crisis of the third century because every i'm sure you probably have found this too that like every history of the later roman empire is just like oh everything fell apart in 235 and then it was put back together in 285 by diocletian like don't worry about this 50 year period in between right. where everything went to hell uh, there was you know 37 emperors in <laughs> 17 years and like it's just a big old mess and we don't have very many sources about it so like just don't worry about it just you can skip this part yeah and you're always told there books and everybody tells everybody like just don't worry about that period well i i wanted to get into it when i got when i did the history of rome and 
when I went into doing the show, I knew nothing about it. And yeah, buried in the middle of the crisis of the third century is like the emperor Aurelian, uh, who in five years, like he accomplished more in five years than almost any other Roman emperor in history. Um, like his his little reign, which nobody ever talks about, nobody ever points to, nobody ever celebrates or even criticizes. Right? He's just mm-hmm. a non he's a complete non entity. Um, so Aurelian is somebody who, and I I will come back to Aurelian. Um, hopefully, if this book is a success, if everybody pre orders the book and then you know it, it sells a sells a bunch of copies and they let me write more books, um, I definitely do want to go back uh, to to talk more about Aurelian and the crisis of the third century. Um, would you, if uh, if things work out as you would like, and the book is a great success and all of it, would you have you could you jump straight there? Or would you have to do a more of a chronological thing and go through, you know, go back to then uh, Julius Caesar and all of that stuff, and then Augustus? Like, what? No, the 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 grant the grand plan that no nobody knows about this grand mm-hmm. plan. I I don't even think my agent knows about this grand plan yet. <laughs> <laughs> There's um. So if if this book works, there's going to be a second book, mm-hmm. um, and I I know what I want the second book to be. I'm actually putting the proposal together for it right now. Uh, that I won't tell you what it is, but it's it's not Roman history. So oh, that's that's, check that's the you thing. Out. Is like, I do I do want to kind of make the same move that I did after the history of Rome and do something that is uh, from you know, we're in a leap forward to the modern world, and I have something that I would very much like to talk about. Um, nice. Sort of modern revolutionary world and then if if that book works then yeah i would come back around and i would love i would love to write a book about the crisis of the third century yeah yeah, yeah. that's cool because you know because you, you can't just do like i mean the the logical thing is to say oh do a biography of aurelian and say well I, there's actually literally not enough yeah material there's there's one pretty decent treatment of him uh that a guy wrote maybe 20 years ago but i mean the snippets that we have to go from it's it's like analyzing coins is is all <laughs> have and right so you can't it, it would be hard i think to fill an entire biography just on Aurelian so i would just have to bury him or ma- make him make him the central pivot of a of a wider book about the crisis of the third century which again i i love periods in history that are um, somewhat neglected i i always have enjoyed uh, shedding light i'm like look at look at what happened over here you guys like we never talk about what happened over here um and the crisis of the third century is a big big version of that the haitian revolution was another one um well let's talk all, all, uh, yeah let's talk yeah. a little bit about revolutions because i mean right now you know we wanted to bring up uh, your book since that's what's coming out this month and roman history since that was your number one hit starting with the history of rome but now you have been doing revolutions for quite a while What's the what's the trajectory with that one? Because you have covered already quite a few of the biggest revolutions in modern human history. Um, how many do you think you have left? Do you see yourself going for a third series after revolutions? Kind of what's what's the status now on all of that? Uh, the status of revolutions is uh, the same as the status of the history of Rome was when I was stuck in the middle of the history of Rome, which is I don't know when this is ever going to end. <laughs> right. Um, so I'm in the middle. I, I've just started. Or I'm smack dab in the middle of the revolutions of 1848, um, which is really like the halfway point. <laughs> this is great. Um, so 
once I get through 1848, you know, I want to, I want to do the Mexican revolution. Um, I want to do the Russian revolution. Um, I would like to do the Cuban revolution. And, you know, I've said this, that I, I would like to carry it forward and do a series, however long or short on the Iranian revolution. Um, because that has, there, there's a lot, there's a lot that people, you know, there's, there's a lot that people don't understand about what happened in Iran and why things happened mm-hmm. in Iran the way that they did. Um, so I would like to sort of get to that point. And then after that, like we're really into, um, current events and I, there's not much more. I, like, I wouldn't, I'm not going to do like the fall of communism or the Arab spring or anything like that. Right. Um, so I feel like I've got at least four or five more complete series. Like I'm in my seventh series, uh, 1848 is gonna is a beast and will take me probably 30, 30 episodes or more to get through because it's fun it's like five to twelve simultaneous revolutions it's yeah. for sure the most um, ambitiously complicated thing that I've ever tackled because even even like the French the French Revolution is nothing is probably ever going to be as long as the French Revolution which wound up being you know, fifty five episodes long um, but that was at least just one very complicated story this is like five very complicated stories all happening simultaneously right no that makes perfect it's fine. sense it's fine. It's, I'm, uh, yeah i'm like lo- i'm losing my hair <laughs> <laughs> i'm fascinated when you say that you're gonna tackle possibly the iranian revolution that looks really juicy as a topic and you know good luck because that can get you into some serious political hot waters there yeah and i tied and to I, modern I, history yeah and i just want to walk through it like yeah. that's it. I just want to like like let's just open our hymnals to like I don't know the end of World War One, and just sort of talk through what happened. That's that's all I that's all I really want to do. That's uh, that sounds like a very sweet idea. But seriously, good luck. Uh, oh, thank you very much. Talk- well, maybe maybe I'll have quit by then. Yeah, talking <laughs> about uh, what happened. Of course, you know there's gonna be. 3,000 people having different opinions. Because, you know, as long as we talk about stuff that happened 3,000 years ago, nobody has a vested interest. So people can be like, oh, that's what happened. That's it. When you start bringing up topics that are very much tied to today, there are a lot more people with skin in the game. And, of course, the emotional reaction, rather than just one based on evidence, tend to rise up. Like, I was considering there are a few stories that I would really badly want to do and they are fairly modern history, like 1970s, 1980s, stuff like that. And every time I start a research, I'm like, do I really want to do this to myself? Because I love the topic, but I already, I can already hear the complaints. The, it doesn't even matter how I'll slice it or how I'll tackle the topic. There will be people who are emotionally invested who will be upset. So that's yeah, why. Yeah, and I'm, and I'm, I'm going to do Cuba. Um, and that's going to be, oh, another, another easy one. Good for yeah, you. That's, I mean, that's going to be the same thing, but like yeah. my hope, my hope, like this is my, like we can timestamp this. You can email yeah. this to me when I'm two, three years from now when I'm buried in some controversy over my take on the Cuban revolution. Um, but you know, I've done, I've done the Haitian revolution. I have done Spanish American independence. Uh, we, there's a lot of groundwork that I've already laid for what my take on Cuba will be. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I will probably inevitably make everybody mad because, <laughs> you know, my, ba- my basic take is that there's very, there like heroes and villains is not a great way to do history. This is people have interests and people want power and they run into each other. And yeah. that's a lot of what 
my that's a lot of the stories that I do. Mm-hmm. So I think by the time I get to Cuba, you know, I've done a ton of I've laid a ton of groundwork on what post-colonial, you know, um, the post-colonial Caribbean looks like to begin with and where it came from and why it came from, because all have done the Mexican Revolution by that yeah. point as well. Um, and uh, and then it's just people looking for power running into each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. Um, add the dragons and you have Game of Thrones, right? Exactly. Yeah, right. Perfect. That's all good. Anything else you want to throw out there before we wrap things up, whether about the book or your podcasts or anything else you want to mention to listeners? Oh, just that the book is coming out October the 24th. It's the storm before the storm. The beginning of the end of the Roman Republic. And I'm I'm quite proud of it, you know? Like, you sit down with a blank piece of paper and... Uh, and you like I like I sold the book, right? Like I pitched the book on basically on spec. Like this is the book I'm going to write. Um, it's not like I had the book written and then took it around to be sold. Um, so I was I was quite uh, I was quite happy at the end when we you know when we put the final you know period and said the end. Like wow, I, you know this turned out a lot like I wanted it to. Um, so <laughs> that's cool. That's very yeah. Cool. It was I was I was it wasn't like um, oh shit. Well, this turned into something it wasn't supposed to be. Um, it was, it was what I set out to accomplish. So I think it's, I think you read it and it's, uh, it's entertaining. I've read it like, I don't know, 50 times now. And I'm sure. Yeah. I'm not totally sick of it. So that, um, that's something, something right there. Something. Yeah. Something. Well, that's awesome, man. Thank you so much for this chat. I hope the book goes uh, incredibly well and you get to do your second and third. And from there on the, for you guys, if you want to, if you haven't, for whatever reason, if you haven't checked out Mike's work yet, you want to do that. The gods of Google are on your side. <clears throat> All you have to do is type Mike Duncan in there, and I'm sure History of Rome will come up, Revolutions will come up, uh, his Twitter account, you know, you name it. All the good stuff. For... Oh, and and while while we're here, I should mm-hmm. mention that there is a there is a book tour. Right, that's uh, that's going to be coming out of all of this. So by the time that October the twenty fourth rolls around, I will actually be in Boston. Um, so I'll be in Boston and New York and Philadelphia and Washington D.C. and then later like Chicago and L.A., San Francisco, Portland, Seattle. Nice. So if you yeah, so if you go to the storm before the storm dot com uh, or revolutionspodcast.com dot com, there will be some information on uh, where I will physically be. And if you're listening to this and you happen to be a fan of mine as well, you can, uh, you can come hang out. I will. I'll do talks. I'll crack jokes. Ask the <laughs> question. You know, all the good stuff. I'll sign. I'll sign your book, uh, and we'll all have a great time. Excellent. I love it. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you guys for listening. Have a very good day. Oh, that was fun.
that's a wrap. I hope you guys have enjoyed this conversation. Now a couple of quick things I want to mention. One I forgot last time in the latest episode, the one about the Pirate Queen. I forgot to give a shout out to the History of China podcast. It was very, very, very sweet. They, they helped me with some of the research, giving me tips regarding where to look for sources. So check them out. Their Twitter is uh, twitter.com forward slash THOC podcast. So the initial for the History of China podcast. Check them out. And since I'm giving shout outs, also big one to History of Westeros. These sweet folks, they have helped me put together a Patreon account. So those of you guys who have been donating via PayPal, you can continue to do so. But if you want to switch to Patreon, it may be easier just to have access to all the perks. Otherwise, I'll just figure out a way to get them to you anyway. But if you want to do that, or if you haven't donated at all, and you are interested in either having access to some of the perks, which will include the early releases of the episodes, episodes without ads, bonus episodes, things like that, or you just simply want the podcast to stay viable for a while, check out patreon.com forward slash history on fire. Again, that's patreon.com forward slash history on fire. Also a big thank you to 23andMe, since this episode of History on Fire is brought to you by 23andMe.com. 23andMe.com is a genetic service that can help you discover where your DNA comes from around the world. You can learn what percentage of your DNA comes from places like Italy, Finland, East Asia and Africa. And with your 23andMe reports, you can explore your connection to the world in a whole new way by traveling to the places that reflect your DNA. So visit 23andMe.com forward slash HOF, standing for History on Fire. Again, that's the number 23 in the letters andme.com forward slash HOF. Check them out. I'm actually planning to do it myself. I'm rather curious. So I, you know, because being from Italy means everything and nothing, right? Just about everybody in the world has invaded Italy at some point. So I'm curious to where, how far the whole. Uh, genes, the movement of genes of how many people have come through actually ended up in my family line so I'm gonna find out also big thank you to blueapron.com they have been sponsoring every episode this year and man do I love their food for less than $10 per person per meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meals each meal comes with a step-by-step, easy-to-follow recipe card and pre-portioned ingredients and can be prepared in 40 minutes or less. I really like the variety of offerings that they have. I really like the quality. And this October, Blue Apron is celebrating its fifth anniversary by bringing back the customers' top 20 favorite recipes from the last few years. You have a chance to check it out with off your first meal with free shipping by going to blueapron.com forward slash on fire so that way you don't have to take my word for it you'll find out for yourself if uh, what they offer is to your liking or not I would bet that you would be because the food quality is just amazing 
But again, that's $30 off your first meal with free shipping by going to blueapron.com forward slash on fire. Also, big thank you to Onnit and Datsusara. You can visit onnit.com if you go to onnit.com forward slash history and automatically receive a 10% discount. Their products, they include such a wide range of stuff that I use every day, from uh, supplements to special foods, workout gear. Uh, they recently, they are getting in stock right now, um, this yoga mat that is, uh, if you are a Star Wars nerd, you have imprinted into the mat, and Solo, Frozen in Jabba the Hutt's cave. Pretty fun, I think I want it. There's all, there's so much good stuff. I use a lot, a lot of their products. So check them out at onnit.com forward slash history. And also check out uh, dsgear.com. Datsusara is a company that specializes in backpacks, computer bags, travel bags, uh, uh, martial arts uniform, all sort of textiles that can be made with hemp. I really like the quality. All of my bags by now are Datsusara, so check them out. Having said this, big thank you to you sweet folks who have been using the History on Fire Amazon link to do your shopping. You know, maybe you buy books that we have mentioned on the podcast or other stuff. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It helps a bunch. As usual, you can check out my Facebook page, Daniele Bolelli, the public profile. It contains info. I regularly post about the podcast, you know, topics that we're going to tackle in the future and things like that. So if you are interested, check out my Facebook page. Having said all this, I will now shut up and wish you a very good day. <laughs>